0: title of our sermon this morning is Love Without Hypocrisy. Love Without Hypocrisy. This is part one, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. So once again, by the grace of God... We've been given an opportunity now to consider uh, this letter of Paul to the church at Rome. And we are now in Romans chapter 12, working through chapter 12 and the implications of the gospel in the life of the believer. Uh, By the mercies of God, in view of all that God has done for us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to present the entirety of our persons, heart, soul, mind, and strength as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices to God that sweet smelling aroma of a whole and continual burnt offering fully consecrated to him. That's the picture that's being given to us in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. That consecration of the Christian requires self-denial. Self-denial. It requires an adamant refusal to be conformed into the patterns of this Evil age, a refusal to be conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, and it requires an earnest pursuit of a wholly transformed life attained through the renewing of your mind in conformity with the revealed will of God. This is the only reasonable or rational response to the overwhelming flood of grace that has been poured out on us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only reasonable service of worship that we are to offer in response to the gospel. Now, that reasonable, that sacrificial service of ongoing worship begins then in Romans chapter 12 with our relationship to his body, the church. That service begins with our relationship to the church. And from that foundational concept, right, the text gives us two fruitful and effective means by which that fellowship is to be attained. Two foundational means to a fruitful and effective relationship to the body, a fruitful and effective service among the members of his body. And that these, those two foundational principles are these one. It requires a humble and sober minded assessment of the gifts and the grace that we've been given by God. It requires a humble and sober-minded self-assessment. And two, it requires a humble and sober-minded acknowledgement then of the role and the function that we're to play as responsible to fulfill that in the church with the gifts and the grace that we've been given. And we're to do that in support of the body. We're to do that in a way that supports the whole. To use an illustration to help us, in the church, so to speak, for example, you may be holding a violin, a bass, or a bassoon. You may be holding a viola. You may be playing a drum. You've been given skill by God to play it. You've been given the instrument. You've been given the tool and you've been given skill to play it. The part that you've been given is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely essential to the masterpiece that we're playing together. The masterpiece that the Lord has given us to play. Don't walk away from your part. That's the lesson in Romans chapter 12 here. Don't walk away from your part. Don't neglect your part. Don't try to take over someone else's part. You've been given a bassoon. Don't sit where the violins sit, right? To use that figuratively. The Lord can move you around the orchestra as He sees fit. He is the conductor. We've been given a symphony to play, and your part is critical in playing that masterpiece. In other words, in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Don't become drunk on a false sense of your own self-importance. Don't become drunk on an inflated sense of the value of your own opinions. Great trouble arises in the church because of what men and women think of themselves. Think soberly, Paul says. Think sensibly, think responsibly. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You've been given a part to play. So play your part in proportion to the measure of faith that God has given to you. Play it as one grateful to be in the band, right? Grateful to have the gifts. Don't sulk because you're not a drummer. Everyone, everybody wants to be a drummer, right? Don't sulk because you're not a drummer. And don't play timidly. Don't play timidly. Don't overdo it, but don't underdo it either. Play your part with boldness. Play your part with confidence. Play your part in proportion to the measure of faith that God has given to you. Four, verse four. "'For as we have many members in one body, "'but all the members do not have the same function, "'so we, being many, are one body in Christ "'and individually members of one another.'" So then, so then, if you've been given a serving gift, then serve in proportion to your faith. If teaching, then teach. If bringing others alongside is your gift, then bring them alongside. If giving is a way that you are to serve the body, then give joyfully and give generously. If you are to lead, lead zealously and with diligence. If you are gifted with a compassionate heart, then get active in the body, demonstrating compassion, and don't be morose about it. It's the message of Romans chapter 12. Now in verse 9 then, in verse 9, Paul now continues the very same train of thought, This is not a disjointed list of proverbs, so to speak. This is all connected. And in verse 9, Paul now continues the very same train train of thought. He's discussing now the manner in which we are to live and function as members of the body. How are we to live and function in the Lord's church? Here's how, right? Although we are many, we are one body in Christ, we are individually members of one another, therefore, Because we are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, therefore, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Now, each of those particular exhortations in verses 9 through 13 could be summarized by the statement that opens verse 9, where Paul says literally, love without hypocrisy, love with a godly sincerity. Dr. Murray Dr. Murray said that no vice is more reprehensible than hypocrisy. No vice more destructive to integrity, because by its very nature, it contradicts the truth. Hypocrisy is Judas betraying Christ with a kiss. It is reprehensible. Hypocrisy is disgraceful. Hypocrisy is shameful. If you're like me, You've been on the receiving end of I love you while someone is slipping the dagger between your ribs. It is reprehensible. (laughs) Nothing, no vice more reprehensible than hypocrisy. They say I love you at the very same time that they are acting in very unloving ways. It is repulsive. Amen? It's reprehensible. Paul says love without hypocrisy. Anupakritas, without hypocrisy, without pretense, without pretending. In other words, your love must be a sincere love, a genuine love, an unblemished love, an unfeigned, unfaked love. The word for love here in verse 9, the word is a noun. It's interesting. Think about that with me. The the word here is a noun. There's no verb in that opening statement. And so Paul is referring to the character or the quality of the love that we profess or practice. The character or the quality of that love is to be without hypocrisy. Love, noun, the thing, love without hypocrisy. Love must be sincere. Stated as a noun even, the expression communicates the weight of an imperative, doesn't it? Love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Love must be without pretense. Love must be without hypocrisy. If we are going to present ourselves as living sacrifices, if we're going to refuse to be conformed to this evil age, transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we must receive this word. We must with meekness conduct ourselves accordingly and we must love without hypocrisy. Love must be anupokritas, literally unhypocritical. Love must be without hypocrisy. The word refers to love that is held up to the light of a biblical standard. Love that is found to be true and genuine through and through will be love that meets a biblical standard for love. Our love must be thoroughly sincere. Now, our English word, our English word sincere, comes from the combination of two Latin words, sine, meaning without, and chera, meaning wax. In other words, sincere is without wax. Now, it was said in the ancient world that a, dis, a dishonest cheat who sold his pottery in the marketplace would use wax to hide defects or cracks in the pottery. He would paint over the wax and then sell his pottery at a higher price as having no blemishes. His pottery was not without wax. It was a painted shell of something different. More reputable craftsmen began hanging a sign over their wares that read, Sinachera, without wax. It means without defect, but it also means without deceit. Right? The one was being deceptive. The one wasn't giving you what you paid for. The one was hiding the defects, hiding the cracks with a cheap wax. The real pottery, the genuine, the sincere, so to speak, was one without wax. It was sincere, Sinachera. It was good. You were actually getting what you paid for. You weren't walking away with a hypocritical pot, right? It was said that you could hold up a piece of pottery to the light and actually see the cracks if there was wax in it, actually see the, the defects, if you will, in some of that pottery. Love marked by hypocrisy is a feigned love that hides its true nature behind a deceptive wax. Do you see? Love marked by hypocrisy is a fake counterfeit that hides its true nature behind a deceptive wax. It may even be deceptive to the person who say they love. They've not come to an understanding of that themselves. They may themselves be deceived. Hypocritical love is a wax nose. It melts away under the heat of adversity. It will not hold up under pressure. That pot is eventually going to leak like a sieve, right? Try to put water in it, it's going to leak. It's hypocrisy. In other words, its insincerity is eventually exposed by the light of God's word. You can hold it up to the light of God's word and you can see its defects. You can see the, cre- the cracks. You can see its hypocrisy. You will know it by its fruits. It's not true. It's not genuine. It's not lasting. It isn't real. You're being offered a deceitful counterfeit. And while they act in ways that are unloving, they turn and say, I love you. That's reprehensible. It's reprehensible. It's repulsive. It cannot be so in the Lord's church. Now, James uses uh, the very same word. Um, This is helpful for us. James uses the very same word in James chapter three. Turn there with me to James chapter three. And James uses this word in reference to wisdom. That wisdom must be sincere, so to speak. James uses this word to distinguish biblical wisdom or heavenly wisdom from that so-called wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and demonic. In James chapter three, James essentially throws down a challenge in verse 13. Throws down a challenge. If you think you're wise, then prove it by how you conduct yourself. That's what James is essentially saying. If you think you're wise, then prove it by your conduct. And remember, James issues this challenge after Probably the clearest rebuke of sinful speech in all the Bible. He rebukes sinful speech. And then he says, if you think you're wise, if anyone among you thinks he's wise, let him prove it by the way that he conducts himself, right? Men go about destroying with their words, cursing their brothers, spewing poison, and then they profess to be wise. They justify their actions. They justify their words, profess to be wise. You can spot a cracked pot by the way he uses his tongue what James is saying. You can spot a cracked pot by the way he speaks. James says, verse 14, verse 14, if you have bitterness and self-seeking in your hearts, then don't boast about your wisdom. You see that? If you have bitterness, if you have self-seeking in your hearts, then don't boast about your wisdom. Do not boast and lie against the truth. This so-called wisdom does not descend from above. That so-called wisdom is earthly sensual, demonic because verse 16 where envy and where self-seeking exists, where you have that bitterness and self-seeking in your hearts, confusion and every evil thing are there. What is the fruit of that envy and self-seeking in your heart? The fruit is confusion. Every evil thing you boast that you're acting with wisdom, but look at the fruit of your so-called wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 17, but in great contrast, how do we recognize the wisdom that comes from God? Verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. If what is going on is not peaceable, it is not from God. It is earthly, sensual, demonic. Do you see? The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, and without partiality and without hypocrisy, anupakritas. It is sincere wisdom, pure wisdom, wisdom without pretense, wisdom unblemished, and James closes with this statement, verse 18. It's the fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who in sincere godly wisdom make peace. In other words, you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits when their words and their actions are consistent with biblical truth. You hold their words, their professed wisdom, you hold it up to the light of of God's word. And you see if there are any cracks in that pot. You see if there are any any defects in the pot. Do you see? Their words and actions are sincere wisdom when it comports, when it is consistent with biblical truth. The word is used to describe biblical wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom. The same word on is used to describe sincere faith, as opposed to a spurious faith. Paul uses it that way in first and second Timothy, right? Of a sincere faith here in our text in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses the word to describe a sincere and unfeigned love as opposed to a counterfeit, a pretense love without hypocrisy is love that bears biblically definable fruit in our thoughts, words, and actions you hold it up to the light of God's word and it doesn't pass muster, it's not biblical love. It is love insincere. It's not love without hypocrisy. That kind of love is biblically defined. Love without hypocrisy is a love that bears biblically definable fruit in our thoughts, words, and actions. It's going to show up in the way that you conduct yourself. In other words, sincere love manifests itself in thoughts, words, and actions that are consistent with what the Bible describes as love. I love you. They're not loving you in the way that the Bible says to love. It's not love. It's insincere. It's hypocritical. Particularly those thoughts, words, and actions that are consistent with what we know of, what, of love as God himself has demonstrated his love toward us, particularly in his son, right? God has communicated in many ways, various ways, Times passed by the prophets, but in these last days he has communicated it. He has communicated to us. He's revealed himself to us through the person and work of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ shows us how we are to love. Amen? We're to love others as he has loved us. So then, what is Paul charging us with? Brothers and sisters, for the sake of our relationships in the church, for the sake of our body, for the sake of our fellowship as those who have been placed in this body to play a part. Right? Placed in this body to perform a masterpiece, as it were. For those of us in the body, for the sake of our fellowship, love, 1 Corinthians 13, must be without hypocrisy. It must be patient. Love is patient. Biblical love is kind. Biblical love is not tarnished by envy, it's not tarnished by bitterness. Love is not motivated by selfishness or pride. It doesn't parade itself. Love is not rude or self-seeking. Love is not selfish or self-absorbed. It is not provoked. It's not provoked to offense. It is not provoked to anger. Love does not impugn another's motives with evil suspicion. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love instead is forgiving. Love does not rejoice boast in its iniquity, love does not glory in sin, rather love glories in that which is true. It will forsake sin and pursue truth for the sake of love. For the sake of our fellowship, our relationships with one another in the body, love will bear all things. Literally, love will put up with all things. It'll put up with all things. Love will believe all things. In other words, it doesn't mean that it believes a lie. Love believes all things in the, in the sense that love will never abandon faith in the Lord. Love will never abandon faith. Love will hope all things in the sense that love will never abandon its hope in the Lord. Love endures all things. Genuine love, love without hypocrisy, never fails. It does not cease like prophecies, tongues, or words of knowledge. One of the central characteristics of a genuine love Of a biblical love is that love endures. God has loved us in that way. Amen? His love toward us will never, never fail. It never fails. One of the central, essential characteristics of a biblical love is that that love endures. And incidentally, one of the central characteristics of a hypocritical love is that it does not endure. One of the marks or characteristics of an insincere, hypocritical, fake, counterfeit love is that it does not endure. It is easily given up or easily sold out when difficulty comes. When hypocritical love faces personal preference, personal preference wins the day. I know how this this is how that I should love. I know that this is the way the Bible defines love, but this is what I want, so this is what I'll do. This is how I'm going to justify doing what I want to do rather than loving in the way that the Bible describes genuine love. Rather than loving the way that Christ loves me, I'm going to do what I want to do. And here's how I'm going to justify the way that I do it, right? That's how it, that's how it goes. The hypocrite will justify himself that he is righteous in what he does. And we are to love without hypocrisy. Money may be at the center of a business relationship, right? Right? without the common or mutual commitment to making money, that relationship will fall apart. A common goal may be at the center of a working relationship. And without a mutual commitment to that common goal, the relationship will fall apart. Well, brothers and sisters, biblical love is to be at the very center of a Christian relationship. And without a deep and abiding relationship commitment without a deep and abiding devotion to biblical love, that relationship will fall apart. It will come apart at the seams. Everyone has to be committed, mutually committed to a deep and abiding devotion to love one another in the way that the Bible says we are to love one another. All of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions as they pertain to one another in the body must the test of this simple imperative, love without hypocrisy. It has to. We might venture in that to describe love then. We might venture to describe love in this way. Love is the heart focused upon its object. The heart focused upon its object with a, an affectionate warmth, an affectionate delight, such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to its object's biblical and spiritual good. I want to read that again so that you can let it sink in. Love, this is just a description, one way to describe it. There are multiple ways that we could describe it. This is one way. Love is the heart focused upon its object, with affectionate warmth or delight, such that love thinks, speaks, and acts. In other words, it's the heart so focused upon its object with delight, that it thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to its object's biblical and spiritual good. Now, if you think of love in that way, then it's going to be easier to discern and acknowledge sin in your own thoughts, words, and actions. Is what I'm saying loving? Is the way that I'm conducting myself, is what I'm doing, is it loving? Well, is it your heart, does it represent your heart focused on your object with affectionate warmth and delight? Is it focused upon its object in such a way that you are thinking, speaking, and acting with an uncompromising commitment and devotion to their biblical and spiritual good. Is that what those words are doing? Is that what your conduct is doing? Is that what your conduct, your words, your thoughts, is that what they are representing? Are you loving in that way? Run your thoughts, run your thoughts through that definition and you'll be more likely to uncover unresolved offenses, bitterness, anger, envy, even indifference. You'll be able to discern gossip, slander, backbiting, You see, run your thoughts, your words through that definition, you'll be able to discern those things. Run your speech through that filter and you'll be more likely to expose gossip, critical spirit, a loose tongue. Especially, especially when you're speaking to someone else and you're not speaking to the one who is supposed to be the object of your love. When you're speaking behind that person's back, should be much easier to discern if you run your thoughts, your words through that filter. Run your actions by that definition. And you'll be more likely to refrain from stirring up strife and contention and division and discord in the Lord's body. And that takes vigilance. It takes commitment to think in that way. But we should always, brothers, for the sake of love, sisters, we should be running our thoughts, our words, and our actions through that Filter Love is the heart focused upon its object with affectionate warmth and delight, such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with an enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to its objects' biblical and spiritual good. Love like that requires work, constant vigilance. It is to be love without hypocrisy. And that is what you are committing yourself to when you say, I love you. When you say, I love you, you are committing yourself to that love. If that focused heart, if that affectionate delight, if that enduring commitment to another spiritual good, if that self-sacrificing devotion to another's good, if it is not mutually present at the center of your relationship, then there are cracks in the bond that is holding that relationship together, there are cracks in the fellowship. And when you fill those cracks with wax, rather than dealing with those cracks in a loving, in a biblical way, to a loving and to a biblical resolution, then your love is insincere. And your professions of love are laced with a reprehensible hypocrisy. That's the way that we're called, we're being called to love. They are even more laced with hypocrisy. When you fail to deal with the plank that is in your own eye first, and you start complaining or grumbling about the speck in the eye of your brother, we are to love without hypocrisy. Is that definition? Think for a moment and examine your own heart and mind. I'm preaching to the choir here. Examine your own heart and mind. Does that describe, does that definition, does that definition describe the character of your love for the brothers and sisters here in this church? We're commanded in the church to love one another. Paul is giving this instruction to us in Romans chapter 12. He's giving it to us in the way that we are to love one another. Is it your heart focused upon the object of your love with affectionate warmth or delight such that your love for that person thinks, speaks, and acts with an enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to their biblical and spiritual good. Is that the way that we are loving? This is the kind of love that's directed by the text. This is the high calling that we've been given. This is the character, this is the character of the love that should mark the Lord's church and distinguish it from the world. This love should distinguish those in the church from those outside the church, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Love without hypocrisy. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Let love, verse chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Paul gives us instruction in the text. Paul gives us a sure guide in the text for how we are to love with a sincere love. The charge is love without hypocrisy, right? Paul now follows that charge with 10 participles. A participle is is like a verb. It's an ing word. And these participles function like imperatives. They function like commands. So here the way that, here's the way that it works in our text. Love without hypocrisy. How? By abhorring what is evil, clinging to the good. Notice the I-N-G participles, right? Abhorring the evil, clinging to the good, being affectionate to one another, excelling in giving In excelling in giving the preference to your brother, verse 11, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, enduring in tribulation, continuing in prayer, verse 13, sharing with the saints, pursuing hospitality. And again, this is a representative list, not an exhaustive list. So how do we love without hypocrisy? By abhorring the evil, clinging to the good, being affectionate, excelling in giving preference, being fervent, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, enduring in tribulation, continuing in prayer, sharing with the saints, pursuing hospitality, and in a whole bunch of other ways. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. This is a list of clear and practical duties now that are necessary to a sincere and fervent love in the fellowship of God's people in the Lord's church. These are necessary. By opening this list with a broad contrast between the evil and the good, Paul is saying here that a sincere love for one another is decidedly moral. It's going to be moral. It's going to accord with God's word. Verse nine, love without hypocrisy, first, abhorring the evil, clinging to the good. To the good. So sin- sincere love then is decidedly moral. Where love fails, that failure could be characterized by its immorality. It could be characterized by sin. In contrast, the genuineness or the sincerity of our love will first be seen in its moral or ethical character. Its sincerity is measured by its moral or ethical conduct. That's why it can be so devastating, so devastating, when unrepentant or unresolved sin is allowed to feed like a leech at the heart of an otherwise godly relationship. When a godly relationship is polluted by sin, corrupted or perverted by unrepentant sin or unresolved sin, conflict, that sin acts like a destructive leech at the heart of that relationship. And unless that leech is dug out, pulled up, that loveless hypocrisy will eventually kill that relationship. That's going to be what takes place. So then, love is going to be morally sincere. It's going to abhor evil and cling to that which is good. Love, morally sincere, will be free then from hypocrisy to the degree that it conforms to the moral love of God. Now, Paul deals with that very subject one chapter over in Romans chapter 13. So flip the page, look at Romans chapter 13, and look there at verse 8. Paul deals with this very subject. Love is decidedly moral in its character. Verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's interesting, isn't it? When you love another, you are fulfilling the law. Now, Paul says here in verse eight that we are to have no unpaid debts. We have to interpret that statement by the analogy of scripture. It cannot mean, according to scripture, it cannot mean that we are prohibited from incurring a debt or prohibited from incurring a financial obligation. That's not what the text is saying. If that were the case, we would be prohibited from borrowing when we have a financial need. And people borrow in the scripture. We're not prohibited from that in the Bible. So what does Paul mean by what he says there in Romans 8? The text means that we, the text prohibits us from having an unpaid debt. Don't owe anyone anything. If you have an arrangement with someone to pay them back, then pay them back. Don't allow that to sit unpaid. That's what Paul is saying in Verse eight, right? We're going to get there soon and we'll explain that more fully. The uh, the text prohibits owing an unpaid debt. Psalm 37, verse 21, describes the wicked as the one who borrows and does not repay. He's not wicked for borrowing. He's wicked for borrowing and not repaying, okay? However, however, in contrast to that, verse eight, love is a primary and a perpetual obligation. It is a primary and a perpetual obligation. You always, we could say in that sense, you always owe love. Verse eight, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Because, verse nine, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, All are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So sincere love then, think with me. Love that is free from hypocrisy will be love that is free from that sin, for example, that violates the seventh commandment. It's going to be a love that is free from sin associated with the seventh commandment. It will be free from any sexual activity in thought, deed, outside of the covenant bounds of a biblical marriage. It will be free from any sin associated with the seventh commandment. It's going to be characterized, in contrast, by faithfulness or fidelity. It's going to be characterized by covenant promises. In other words, it's going to be free from any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. If it's going to be sincere, otherwise it's hypocritical, right? And I'm sure you may know that or have experienced that. Someone says, I love you, and then they serve themselves, by pursuing love with you, so to speak, in a way that's not biblical. You understand what I'm saying? Furthermore, from verse nine, sincere love will be free from any sin that violates the sixth commandment, which is you're not to murder. That includes any, any instance of that sin. For example, it will be free from unrighteous anger, which the Lord says in Matthew five is the seed of murder in the heart. It will be characterized by a pursuit of its objects, good, their well-being. Sincere love is incompatible with that kind of selfishness. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love that is sincere does no harm to a neighbor. Sincere love, love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy, is first and foremost morally pure in its ethical character. It's... Love that conforms to the law of love. That love willingly and joyfully conforms to the love. And it willingly and joyfully conforms to the law because it is sincere love expressed by someone who abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. To say, I love you while you're sinning against me is a profession of love that is steeped in hypocrisy. You see, to say you love someone while you're sinning against them is hypocrisy. That hypocrisy is reprehensible. The word for abhorrence here refers to an utter hatred. Jude 23 conveys that sense of utter hatred when he says that believers must have uh, hate even the garment that is defiled by the flesh. They have an utter hatred for evil. That's how we must view all evil. We must view evil in that way. We must cultivate within our own hearts and minds an utter hatred for it. That cultivation of that hatred comes as our minds are renewed, Romans 12, 2, through the Word of God, in conformity to the Word of God. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to cultivate a hatred an utter hatred for evil. It's the one who has cultivated that abhorrence for evil that will not abide it in his thoughts, speech, and actions. If you hate it, you will not abide it in your thoughts. You're going to be fighting against it. You will not abide it in your words. You will not abide it in your actions. You're going to be fighting against it. We are to abhor that which is evil. If the one who has cultivated, the one who has cultivated that abhorrence for evil certainly will not will not abide evil in their relationships with their brothers and sisters in the church. Where there's evil, they're going to be digging it out. Abhor that which is evil. So think with me now, are you prone to grumbling? Are you prone to complaining? Are you given to a critical spirit? Are you tempted to evil suspicion? All those are sins, right? Those are sins against God. It is at least in part due to the fact that you do not look upon that sin with the utter abhorrence that you should. It's at least in part related to that, right? In other words, we are to cultivate within ourselves an utter abhorrence for evil, such that we don't even want to look upon it. We cannot abide it in our thoughts, words, and actions. And if we're given, if we're given to a sin, that's a sin that we are prone to, then it's at least in part due to the fact that we haven't cultivated within our own heart and mind the abhorrence of it that we should. And we need to work on that. Do you gossip? Do you slander? Do you receive slander? Do you entertain slander? Do you undermine the high esteem that is due your brother by speaking critically of him behind his back. It is at least in part due to the fact that you have not readily recognized or acknowledged the seriousness of that sin and cultivated within your own heart and mind an abhorrence for it. That abhorrence for sin is the fruit of someone who has been transformed by the renewing of their mind. It's a mark or a characteristic, a growing abhorrence of sin. is a mark of someone who's being transformed, being renewed, In their mind, the spirit of God, applying the word of God to the heart and mind of that person will produce the fruit of abhorrence for that which is evil. Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, verse eight, he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The fruit of the spirit will depart from iniquity. David says of the wicked. In Psalm 36, David says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. It's another way of saying that he justifies himself. He justifies himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes. He says, when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. When he finds out his iniquity, when he hates another, He justifies himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, no matter how he justifies it. He has ceased to be wise then and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. He does not abhor evil. Likewise, likewise, the one who would love with a sincere love is the one who clings to what is good. It's the same term used by the Lord in Matthew 19 to describe marriage, where the Lord says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Describes that union as they shall become one flesh. In other words, he will cleave to his wife to such a degree and with such an intimacy that they could be described as one. That's how we're to cling to that which is good. We're to cling to good. That living sacrifice who with love without hypocrisy will be one who abhors what is evil and cleaves to what is good. Remove the godly and moral implications from a sincere love and all you are left with is the empty husk of a bankrupt counterfeit that is steeped in hypocrisy full of wax, cracks, and defects. Amen? So that sincere love that Paul is calling us to is a very tall order. It's a very high calling. It requires constant work, constant vigilance, constant diligence. And that kind of sincere love is frankly, brothers and sisters, impossible. If we are not going to get life and death earnest about setting aside that sin which so easily ensnares us and get to work, working at loving one another without hypocrisy and doing that in the power of his spirit, It's impossible. Sincere love, though, is possible with the help, the strength, the supply of his spirit. Sincere love will guard the use of your tongue, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Sincere love, sincere love will esteem others more highly than yourself. Sincere love will labor for their edification, will Demonstrate enduring commitment, lasting devotion to their spiritual well-being. Sincere love will confess sin, or repent of sin, which pollutes the relationship, will dig out that which pollutes the relationship. Sincere love for Christ will mortify sin. And we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. In John chapter 13, when the Lord is meeting with his disciples in the upper room, uh, the Lord takes a basin and he washes their feet. That encounter with his disciples in the upper room is preceded by this statement in verse one, where the Lord is said to, uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now you could take that statement, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, meaning the end of his life. To the very end of his life, he loved his own who were in this world. He gave up his life for them. And that would certainly absolutely be true of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that word end is referring to there in John 13, one is the uttermost. He loved them to the highest degree imaginable, not only delivering his body up in death for them, but taking their sin and shame upon himself on the cross. He loved them with a matchless, a superlative, a preeminent love, a love that we are as the people of God to aspire to in our love for one another. It's a tall order, isn't it? A high calling. Easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a selfish man to love without hypocrisy. (laughs) But the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Brothers and sisters, we must pursue this love with one another. We must abhor that which is evil. We must cling to that which is good. We must depend, labor with the Spirit, depend upon the Spirit for help in doing this very thing. And we must pray that the Lord would be pleased to cause us to abound in this grace for our own good and for the sake of his church. Amen. May the Lord be pleased to help us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, please help us, we pray. Please help us. Please strengthen us. Please, Lord, uh, cause us to see the cracks, the defects in our own love. Uh, cultivate within our hearts and minds an abhorrence for evil. Cause us in the strength of your spirit to cleave to that which is good. Cause us, Lord, to, to run all of our thoughts, words, and actions through the filter of this sincere love that Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12. And help us to love in this way. Please forgive us, Lord, when we have failed the many times that we have failed to love in this way and help us lord to labor with one another in the body to cultivate relationships in your church that are marked by this particular kind of love may it be as the lord has called it to be that which endears uh, others to us uh, they can tell how we love the lord by our love for one another Uh, Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world by manifesting, demonstrating that kind of love for one another and love for the lost with the gospel. Help us, Lord, we pray. This is a calling, a high calling. We know, Lord, it is impossible for us to do in and of ourselves. We know that what is impossible for us is certainly possible with God. So, Lord, command what you will and supply that which you will.